And I think one of the first questions we need to ask is, why is Genesis so important to the whole story as we look at how all the pieces go together? So the word Genesis means beginning. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 16th episode of Working with the Word. This week, we move into Earth's orbit. I think I accidentally said atmosphere last week. As we continue our analogy of considering the whole story, this time rather from the Hubble telescope to the International Space Station level. We are considering different sections of Scripture and how knowing these sections and how they fit into the whole story will help us as we read and have opportunity to do some inductive study from God's Word. In this episode, we are focusing on the beginning of the story with Genesis. We want to provide some help about how knowing the picture of Genesis will help us to see God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to Him through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But first, we want to take a moment to respond to some listener mail. Sam reached out to us on Instagram and asked us the following. I wanted to pose a question or struggle that I have when doing daily Bible reading. How do I make the jump from daily Bible reading to daily Bible study? I'm someone that always needs a workbook when studying with a Bible class, so I struggle with jumpstarting my own Bible study, not just reading by myself. Just thought I'd throw that question out. Curious to hear your thoughts and thank you again. So first of all, Sam, we want to say thank you for listening and asking the question. I think this is a question that a lot of our listeners are probably wondering as we've talked about both Bible study and Bible reading. Uh, Jeff, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I know I've felt this way before, and maybe some of you have as well, just like Emerson mentioned. I want to first of all refer everyone to what Mark Roberts said towards the end of our interview with him when we talked about the phrase deeper Bible study. We never want our listeners to think that that phrase means we have to purchase thousands of dollars worth of books or Bible study software in order to go deeper into our Bible study. I don't think that's really part of Sam's question, but I just want to go ahead and throw that out there to make sure everyone's on the same page. To give our opinion about how to transition from daily Bible reading to daily Bible study, I think it comes down to what we do after we finish reading, particularly what, if any, kind of questions we ask when we finish reading. As someone who struggles with IndyCar type of daily Bible reading, remember that's just kind of the doing it as fast as I can to get over with it. You know, as someone who struggles with that, I found a simple way to help avoid that is to know that I'll be asking two questions after I finish my reading each day. Number one, what does this passage teach me about God or Christ? And number two, what do I need to do based on this passage? Now, I try to constantly remember that when making that application question, I have to do my best in observation and interpretation beforehand, so there might need to be a few more questions to really help flesh that out. But it's a starting point. A final thing I might do is if I feel like I'm struggling to move from simply reading to studying, is looking for important or repeated words and themes when reading that day. My go-to example of this is I want to ask you to read 1 John 4. And after you read that, go back and look through and simply mark in some way, maybe you circle in a red pen or underline or something like that, all the times the word love is used. When you see how often love comes up, it'll probably naturally cause us to ask, what am I supposed to draw out about love from this chapter? Are there multiple ways or relationships love is described? 
Again, as someone who has pondered and struggled over the difference between Bible reading and Bible study, I think I need to first remind myself I may not need to make too big a deal out of the distinction between the two. But if I am going to make a distinction between the two, I think it comes down to the questions we ask after our reading. Even quote-unquote simple questions like, what does this teach me about God, are great study questions. I hope that was helpful in some way, Sam. Like we mentioned in the introduction of our last episode, we hope to do a series later this year about what type of questions can be most helpful, especially as we're trying to inductively study our Bibles. So be on the lookout for that, and I'll be excited to check in back with you to see if it was helpful or not. If you have your own question and would like for us to answer it in a listener mail segment, you can always reach out to us on Instagram like Sam did at workingwiththeword.podcast, on Facebook or Twitter at workingwiththeword, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. Now, let's get back into the whole story, and as we always should with stories, let's start with the beginning. So we're talking about Genesis, and I think one of the first questions we need to ask is, why is Genesis so important to the whole story as we look at how all the pieces go together? So the word Genesis means beginning. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. There are several beginnings in Genesis. Genesis explains the beginning of the universe. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 shows us how he did that and shows us the beginning of human life. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man. That word is not the male gender, but mankind. Let's make humanity in our image. Shows us the beginning of marriage and family. So in Genesis 2, God made the woman and he brought her to the man that they would be complementary, that she would provide companionship. And so because of that, It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It also shows us the beginning of sin. So in Genesis 3, we see Eve rejecting what God had said about not eating from that tree. And the consequences of that were horrendous. So the beginning of this rebellion against God that continues to get worse and worse. And then we also see the beginning of God's plan to save humanity through the promises that he makes to Adam and Eve, through the promises to Noah and to Abraham, without getting too ahead of myself here. I mean, all of that is seen in just the first three chapters of Genesis. Genesis is so important in laying a a foundation for understanding the rest of the Bible. Without this book, I think we'd be completely lost for the rest of the story, both literally and uh, just trying to understand what this story means. There are a ton of connections between Genesis and the New Testament. Uh, Genesis is quoted explicitly in the New Testament roughly 35 times. It is the fourth most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, and not to mention many more allusions and indirect references in the New Testament. So certainly there's a lot of of tight-knit teaching that goes on there, and there are patterns that start in Genesis that show up elsewhere in the Bible. So that's kind of what we're going to unpack today as we think about the importance of, of Genesis. Genesis has two major parts. We've got chapters 1 through 11 that focus on the history of the human race, and then 12 to 50 talk about the history of Abraham's family. So, Jeff, why don't you talk to us a little bit about 1 through 11 And what are some of the major themes and things that we see in the first half of Genesis? 
So like we mentioned last week, as we think about stories and things that all stories have, we talked about some of those C's, conflict, characters, climax, and conclusion. I think I messed up the order of some of those there, but you know what I'm talking about, everybody. We see here in the beginning of Genesis 1 through 11 that two of our main C's there are introduced, the characters and the conflict. Now, there will be lots of characters introduced throughout the story, and there will be lots of conflict. But here's the beginning of all of that, the beginning of the characters, the beginning of the conflict of the Bible story. As we think about the characters we are introduced to, of course, we have God in Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning, God created the heaven of the earth. And just like Emerson talked about mankind in Genesis 1:26 and 27, and we reference Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning of sin, we see Satan is introduced there in that chapter. Now, in Genesis 3, it's true he's only referred to as the serpent, but we know from later texts like the book of Revelation and that Genesis 3 is talking about Satan. But let's think mm-hmm. about the conflict we see in Genesis 1 through 11. We see God gives this instruction. He gives a command that he expects man to obey. In Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, it says, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent deceives the woman into breaking God's command in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. When the serpent comes up and says, you'll surely not die, he lies to her about that. And so she chooses to rebel against God's command and to not follow that command that God gave back in Genesis chapter 2. So we see what once was called good by God and what was once blessed by him has now been cursed in the rest of Genesis chapter 3. Now the man and the woman are separated from the presence of God. They're exiled from him and from the garden. And what we're going to be looking for is that seed that's talked about in Genesis 3.15, that seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we read that, it may not be immediate to us, but we think Jesus in that passage. Yeah, so in the context of all those curses, there's this really ambiguous promise of someone who's going to come, who's going to destroy the serpent. And like you said, it's not really clear. I mean, we understand it's Jesus because of later texts, but for Adam and Eve, they're probably scratching their heads thinking, I understand what it's going to, how painful life is going to be, but what does this mean? <laughs> and so yeah. this, the, the point is just look forward, keep looking for someone who's going to come. Exactly. Even here we have in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the conflict, we're already told we need to be looking for resolution. So we're going to constantly be looking, is this the seed of the womb? We're going to see some great characters like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Here, even just in the book of Genesis, are these the seed of the woman who are going to crush the head of the serpent? I'm going to have to just read and find out. So Mm -hmm. we think about some of those conflicts, or the conflict that is described there really, the main conflict is that of kind of the the conflict between the seed of the woman and then the seed of the serpent. Are we going to choose to rebel against God as the serpent wants us to do, or are we going to obey God as God wants us to do? But there are some themes in this section as well in Genesis 1 through 11 we want to bring out. Of course, there's the idea of creation, and we see in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth. But from creation, we also see this theme of what we're calling uncreation and then recreation. As we move ahead in the story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, we're probably familiar with the story of Noah and the flood. 
And in the beginning of that chapter, in Genesis chapter 6, when God sees how great the wickedness of man really is, he uncreates everything with the flood. Through this act of judgment upon man's sin and wickedness, he sees that he is going to uncreate everything. There's going to be this hard reset on his creation. Minus everyone and everything whom he takes care of in the ark that Noah builds. Then after the flood, it's almost like another creation story, a recreation story. We have a garden. We have the phrase, be fruitful, multiply, just like God told Adam and Eve in the beginning. We see other things in there as well that kind of hint to us that there's a recreation of things. Now, nothing like the flood is ever going to happen again. That's part of the promise that God makes to Noah there in Genesis Mm -hmm. chapter 9. But the uncreation, recreation theme continues often in language of the prophets when God says he's going to destroy cities or nations when he judges them for their sin. But then we often see how God will also talk about a time after the judgment when he is going to gather people to himself who will love and serve him. I want to think about this example from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I shall rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's uncreation type of language. Earth is going to be consumed, destroyed by God. Think about how the earth was consumed with that flood. God is using this language, I'm going to consume these nations with the wrath of my fire, my jealousy. But we go on with verse 9, and we see it says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. That's recreation type of language, where God is taking what he has destroyed through his indignation and wrath, through what he can justly do with that and this justice, through now people are going to come to him and worship him. We get this new picture where people are in the presence of God once again. But along with this creation, uncreation, recreation theme, we're also introduced, like we mentioned, to sin, as well as some other big topics like grace and faith. We see sin. There are many ways you could define that. Maybe you've heard of the idea of it's missing the mark, uh, breaking God's commands. We want to think about that simply as people choose to rebel against God's command. You see Adam and Eve do that when they choose to partake of the fruit. We see Cain doing that when he kills his brother. And in fact, Genesis 4 verse 7 is the first time we see the word sin appear on the pages of Scripture. Now, Adam and Eve did sin, but that's the first time we see the word when God tells Cain sin is crouching at the door. We see the world full of wickedness, and again, this idea about sin is so prevalent. The conflict is there, that there is sin, and what is God going to do about all of this sin? We see that God does act with justice and judgment upon the earth with the flood, but we also see grace. We see that God gives people what they do not deserve. Not in a rude way or a mean way, but in a loving, kind, generous way. We see how God gives Adam and Eve grace in the garden when, after they, or I guess after they leave the garden, where the fact that He clothes them and covers their shame from their sin, where the fact that they have a chance to live and they do not die right there on the spot. Now, they are going to die as a response to what they have done in their sin, but even in that moment, we think about that curse towards the serpent, 
And while they have to live with their curses, there is still hope. There is still this thing to look forward to that God says, I'm going to do something about the problem of sin that man has chosen to rebel against me. That's God's grace there in that moment. We maybe see it most clearly in this section in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Obviously, again, the world is full of wickedness, but Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found favor. You might think about that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And finally, this idea of faith is so prevalent in here. Faith is the fact that man trusts God to do what God says he will do. God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. So man is going to do what God asks of him to do. Hebrews 11 and verse 7 talks about how by faith Noah built the ark. You think about Noah could have listened to God there and said, well, that's never happened before, and just gone on and not built the ark. And then he would have had a much wetter life towards the end of Genesis chapter 7. But instead, he trusts that God is going to do what God said he was going to do. So he does build the ark, and he listens. He has faith in him. That faith and obedience we're already seeing are connected together in a strong way. Now, to close out this section in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, chapters 10 and 11 are moving the story forward. In Genesis chapter 10, we see where the people scattered through the genealogy of Noah's sons. Genesis chapter 11 tells us why the people scattered through the story of the Tower of Babel. But after that chapter, or really through chapter 11, after the story of the Tower of Babel, we slow down and zoom in from a period covering approximately 2,000 years, as some say, and concerning all the peoples of the earth to a much more specific time and a much more specific person in his family with the stories of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 50. Yeah, you know, in reading Genesis, Genesis 12 really needs to kind of shock us because up to this point, we've been reading these huge stories, monumental stories, and covering 2,000 years of history in 11 chapters of the Bible. That's moving really, really fast. Why slow down so much whenever we start talking about Abraham? Well, it's because Abraham is going to be a key to the preparations God is making for what's to come. So that promise that was made in the garden to Adam and Eve about this seed who would come, who would crush the serpent's head, Abraham is going to connect to that. God is making more promises. So chapters 12 through 50 focuses on Abraham as God's chosen man through whom to bring those promises to fruition and Abraham's family. And so there are really two major themes that come from 12 to 50. Some of those connect back to what you talked about with 1 through 11. There's a lot of overlap in these themes. But the two major themes, I think, of Genesis 12 to 50 are covenant slash promise and faith slash grace. So, you know, just think about that first one, covenant and promise. In Genesis 12, God makes three great promises to Abram. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As you go back through that, God says, I will do something seven times. And those seven times really boil down to three promises, that God's going to give him a great land, a great nation, and a great seed or a great blessing. And that word blessing is important because it promises to undo the curse, which is the opposite of blessing, 
that came in Genesis chapters 3 and 4 from sin. So what God is going to do is he's going to undo what man has done to destroy his relationship with God. And these three promises to Abraham form the shape or the outline. If you think about that picture of a puzzle again, the Bible has all these different pieces and parts and how do they go together? Well, Genesis 12, the promises to Abraham kind of form the shape or the outline of that puzzle and everything else kind of fills in the rest of the Bible. All three of these promises somehow point to Israel's future history. We think about the promised land, Canaan, the great nation that Israel would become. But ultimately, they all point to Jesus. God is going to remember his covenant to Abraham and fulfill them ultimately through Jesus. And this word covenant, you know, when you're reading Genesis, you'll run across that word several times. That is a very important concept in Genesis. A covenant is a relationship between God and his people based upon what God has promised. And so, for instance, in Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abraham about these promises. And Genesis 15 is one of those places in Genesis where you'll really scratch your head and you'll <laughs> think, well, what, is, what in the world is going on? You read that God tells Abraham to take animals, cut them in half, and lay them opposite one another. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. He has this vision of a flaming torch passing through the animals, and you're like, what is going on here? <laughs> and it makes a little bit more sense when you understand that this is the way covenants were made back in those times. The language of making a covenant was literally cutting a covenant because you would cut these animals apart. Both parties would walk together through the pathway between these animals. And the meaning of it is, is this is how serious this relationship is. This is what will happen to me if I do not keep my end of the deal. And so you see God emphasizing um, his faithfulness to Abraham, that he is going to bring about these promises. And so as you read the story, the promises and the covenants are repeated and passed down to Isaac and Jacob as kind of a family heirloom. You see them repeated in the language in the rest of Genesis. And that leads us to really our, our second theme of Genesis 12 to 50, faith and grace, which are really interwoven together in Genesis in the same way that they were with Noah and with Adam and Eve. Just full disclosure here, Abraham is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he, he is upheld in the New Testament as the greatest example of faith, um, other than Jesus, obviously. Yeah. And um, you see in, in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians 3 and Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham left the land that he grew up in and he went to the promised land. James chapter 2, Abraham was justified by faith, by his working faith. And so Abraham, you see him as this great example of faith and trusting in God, even when things didn't make sense to him. And the thing about Abraham is that as you read the story, he was given all these promises at a time when he had no children. I mean, he had no prospects of becoming a great nation at all. He and Sarah were childless. And so you see his faith coming into play whenever he trusts in God when those promises in a, in a scientific way, are just, they cannot, they cannot take place. At the same time, you see grace interwoven with his faith because his faith was not perfect. You know, throughout the story, you see him struggling to understand and even struggling to believe in God. And you see him attempting to take control. Two times he lies to protect himself. He actually puts Sarah in danger to protect himself from being killed. 
at Sarah's suggestion, he sleeps with Hagar and has a son with her, thinking that that's the way that this promise is going to be fulfilled. He even laughs to himself whenever God says, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael. It's going to be through Sarah. And yet, despite his imperfections, God is gracious to him. So faith and grace are interwoven so much in Abraham's life and really all of Abraham's descendants as well. So in the story of Abraham and his descendants, there are many twists and turns. For Abraham and Sarah, they had no children. And whenever God did bless them with the son, Isaac, then all of a sudden in Genesis 22, Abraham is called to sacrifice that promised son. As we move forward in the story, Isaac has no wife. So how can this promise be moved forward? Then God blesses him with Rebekah as his wife. Then whenever they have two sons, Jacob and Esau, Jacob swindles the blessing from Esau. Later on, Jacob accidentally marries two wives. There's favoritism that comes as a result of that family feud and rivalry. Uh, Jacob's sons sell their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And so you have this dysfunctional family (laughs) that God is using to fulfill his promises, and yet God is still faithful to those promises, which again highlights his grace. And through that story, through that dysfunctional family, you also see pockets of hope and faith like Jacob learning to humble himself and trust in God, not being manipulative, not swindling or controlling, but rather he learns that he's not in control and he needs to humble himself before God. Joseph looks to God whenever he's suffering in in Egypt and all the terrible things that happened to him that he didn't ask to happen to him. All all these things are happening to him, but yet he's trusting in God. And he even speaks of how whenever he's dead and gone, that his descendants are to carry his bones to the land of promise again, looking forward to the promise. Mm -hmm. And then you also see the story of of Judah, who rises into this self-sacrificing leader, the one that had the idea of selling Joseph into slavery because at least we'll get some money out of him. He's the one that ends up laying down his life and offering himself as the trade in order to preserve, in order to save his brother, Benjamin. And so the story of developing faith and trusting in God's promises really just interwoven together with God's grace. And all of these people are examples to us of how we can look forward and trust in in God's grace. So there's there's a lot in Genesis, obviously, more than we could put in, in one episode. But that's kind of a summary of, of the themes of, of Genesis 1 through 50. And that helps us to, again, see the beginning of the whole story. But really, we understand that is just the beginning. Uh, for a moment, before we get to our conclusion, as we think about kind of wrapping up, I want to take you all back to my childhood. And growing up, watching most Mighty Morphin Power Rangers episodes... They shared the same story structure. You know, it's a normal day in Angel Grove, and all of a sudden, oh no, a monster's there. But then there's this minor victory. There's this slight lull in the middle of the episode. But then all of a sudden, oh no, the monster gets real big. What are we going to do? And then the Power Rangers assemble their Megazord together, and it ends with a happy ending. You know, all is well when there's victory. However, there were occasional episodes where there was just way too much story to fit into one 30-minute episode, even kind of similar to what we're talking about mm-hmm. today. Things were serious. 
you know, there were multiple strong, powerful enemies. There was something that would happen that, you know, someone would turn among the Power Rangers and there would be this great conflict and threat. How are we going to resolve this? There would still be this plot or this threat that was left unresolved. And then those three words would come up on the screen to be continued. Boy, if you miss, you know, some episodes, it's kind of like, okay, they're just their own isolated events. But some episodes, man, I got to tune in tomorrow because mm-hmm. there is more of this story to find out. And we realize that we've really just touched the beginning of the whole story of the Bible. We see a lot of the major themes when we see sin and grace, we see faith, we see the promises and the covenants that are started with all of this moving the story forward as God is fulfilling his plan. But we still have plot that's left unresolved. Jacob is in Egypt with his family, and 70 people is you know a large family, but that's definitely not a nation, and they're mm-hmm. also not in the land that God said they would be in. So as we close on Genesis, we think, well, okay, there's still more to do, though. Is God going to be faithful to these promises? So how will God fulfill these promises to Abraham and his sons? And how is he going to hold the serpent to the curse of that crushing defeat from Genesis chapter 3.15? Well, we just have to understand there is more to uncover that's going to help us know that God had that plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So, stay tuned, keep reading, and keep studying with us. So we want to end with our challenge today. We want to encourage you to read Genesis chapters 1 through 3. These chapters are absolutely critical if you want to understand the rest of the Bible. So read them at least three times this week and ask yourself, how do these chapters help me understand God? How do they help me understand the world that I live in? And how do they help me understand myself? And relate those chapters to what you already know about the Bible, whether that's little or whether that's much, and ask yourself, how does that set the stage for the rest of the Bible story? So your challenge this week is read Genesis 1 through 3, three times this week, and ask yourself, how does this lead me to understand and read the rest of the Bible? Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Next week, we continue to orbit in Earth's atmosphere as we consider the law section of Scripture, focusing on Exodus through Deuteronomy. We'll want to consider why the law, and how was the law helpful for the Israelites, and what do we do with the law today? This law or covenant plays a big part in how God chose to deal with the conflict of sin until Christ came. So we'll want to understand that these are not just boring rules, but they are a crucial part to understanding the whole story. Until then, if there are questions, topics, and books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can always find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Bless you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to go back to... Yeah. <laughs>